0: Hello and welcome to the Spectator Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I have with me Louise Doughty, the author of the novel that was filmed as Apple Tree Yard and most recently Black Water. Louise, welcome. I know your new novel is not Apple Tree Yard, but Apple Tree Yard is the one that everybody's talking about at the moment. Can you tell me a bit about the experience of that? It's gone slightly nuts for you lately, hasn't it? It,
1: it really has gone nuts, actually. I think, call me naive, but I didn't think it would go quite this nuts. First of all I think it's about the casting. We got the fantastic Emily Watson in the lead role and the minutes you have a star that big in a television drama then it's obviously going to be a bit more high profile. And then we were told it was going out on BBC One on the coveted Sunday at nine PM slot, which is really the most prestigious slot in terrestrial television. I think that was the point. Yeah. And quite often I was quite surprised we got it with Apple Tree Yard because quite often that slot's more associated with with what you might call family viewing with the kind of pole dark or the big historical dramas it's quite unusual for them to give that slot to a high profile contemporary and very controversial drama but they did bless them bless the BBC and yes it's gone absolutely crazy we've had across the board coverage and a lot of tabloid interest I wonder if you can guess what aspect of the drama they're most interested in. <laughs>
0: Was psychological suspense?
1: Uh, no, funnily not, no. It really did shock me, the amount of coverage that the sex got, considering actually how little sex there is in it. I think there's about five minutes in the first episode. But also, there's no nudity at all. No, it's think, not very graphic at it's all. It's not I'm... at all. I mean, I think there's one glimpse of Emily's bare shoulder in a disabled toilet. But it's... I think down to the fact that they're very good actors, Emily Watson and Ben Chaplin, but the camera is on their faces the whole time. That's all you get. You get their facial expressions and a bit of heavy breathing and some very intense eye contact. And yet the tabloids went absolutely berserk over the sexual content. And that did shock me, actually. Well, is that, do you think, in any
0: way related to sort of the idea that here is, A, a a woman being naughty and also it's a, she's a sort of woman of middle age you know it's not about you know you don't see that much
1: very much so i think we see very little middle age sex on television full stop and we certainly don't see it from actors like emily watson i mean she is a national treasure it's a bit like getting judy dench pole dancing or something like that it is, <laughs> it is shocking and she's a woman of a certain age she's very lovely looking but you know, she's she's a kind of every woman. She's the sort of woman that a lot of people identify with. When you think of how many very young women actresses we see trussed up, tortured, splayed all over the screen, uh, you think of the amount of violence we're seeing on screen. I mean, Taboo, which is was showing at the same time of Apple Tree Yard. I mean, I loved it. I love a, all that kind of gothic stuff. But, you know, you get evisceration on the screen. The idea that Apple Tree Yard was particularly shocking, I think... Did say more about the culture which found it shocking rather than the drama itself.
0: Well, you were just earlier saying that there'd been some sort of weird mix up with Sherlock that.
1: Yes, that was what hilarious. Was uh, with all respect to Sherlock fans, it was very funny. The rumour went round that Apple Tree Yard was a beard for a fourth episode of Sherlock, which the BBC, for reasons that could only be guessed at, were keeping hidden. And so it started to go around the websites online. People were combing Sherlock for clues. They were saying that Ben Chaplin, our star, had the same initials as Benedict Cumberbatch. Watson, get it? Same name as Watson. They were talking about uh, the Watson character in Sherlock standing in front of an apple tree. Apparently at one stage in the last series there was a line with Sherlock saying people say good things come in threes but we know that's not always true. So this whole rumour started... And then when it turned out to be a new series <laughs> called Apple Tree Yard, there was outrage. I mean, Twitter was extraordinary. The Twitter sphere exploded with outraged Sherlock fans who were just furious that we weren't Sherlock. Extraordinary. Can I a bit,
0: as an author, when you see your work transposed to the screen, I remember Irvin Welsh saying to me that you know, he wrote begbie for instance, in Trainspotting. It's kind of quite a big guy. And suddenly Robert Carlyle comes along and plays him as this sort of funny little wiry kind of moustachioed sort of Zuma character. And now, in Irvin's head, that's what Begby looks like. Has it changed your understanding of your novel?
1: Yes and no. I think Emily was very close to how I'd imagined Yvonne, other than the fact that she's tall. Yvonne in the novel is quite short, and, and Emily Watson's quite tall. But in terms of her, her sort of body shape, her look, the clothes she wears, um, she was really frighteningly close and that was true of a lot of the characters. The two male leads were slightly different from how I'd imagined. When I first heard that Ben Chaplin had been cast as Mark Cosley, I was worried he was a bit too good-looking because I was thinking of him from his sort of rom-com days, you know, with Uma Thurman in Hollywood. But actually, he's aged really well. You know, he is a middle-aged man in quite sort of interesting, <laughs> sort of slightly rumpled way.
0: I don't know if you can take that entirely as a compliment. He's saying, well, he's like too good looking, but he's aged perfectly. Yes,
1: <laughs> <this." laughs> he's matured. He's, he's got a sense of humour, Benny he won't mind. And the other one is Mark Bonnard, who plays Yvonne's husband, Gary. He, in the novel, was, I think, slightly underwritten. He was just like the big bulky husband type for her to come home to, although he has his own sins to count. And the interesting thing is Mark Bonnard is quite an edgy actor. He does bring a bit of edge to that character. But dramatically, that really, really worked. I mean, there is a scene where he has to hold a knife to a barrister's throat and dramatically on the screen. You've got to believe that that man is capable of doing that. And I think Mark Bonard really did that. The spookiest thing was the minor characters. Obviously, with the leads, they have to cast a big name and then make the character fit that name, if you like. But the minor characters... It felt as though they were just lifted from the pages of the book, and that was very, very odd. I mean, Rosa, the young actor playing Rosa, looked exactly how I imagined Rosa would look, and it was like this creature I'd conjured wandering in front of me on set, it was very spooky. Speaky.
0: Did you have any say in the casting at all?
1: No, but they were very good at making me feel as though I had. They consulted me a lot. I was associate producer, still don't know what that is, but... I just said there's a very good producer, Chris Carey, who just made a lot of effort to make me feel included, to ask my opinion on things. And ultimately, I think you have to hold your hands up and say, OK, you know, it's your baby. Take it away. But I really, really hit lucky, I think, with the crew I got who were happy to bring me on board, which I understand is not always the case.
0: No, very much not. I've <laughs> spoken to so many writers who like, I turned up to the set and there wasn't even one of those chairs with my name across the back of it. <laughs> So one thing I have to ask this, because my wife has asked me too, did she do it? What do you think?
1: Well, it depends what you think it is, because that conversation that they have in the so-called safe house, okay, massive spoiler alert to anyone who's listening to the podcast who hasn't read the novel, legally... That does make her guilty. Under the law of joint enterprise, as it stands in this country, if you have urged somebody to do serious harm to somebody else and you drive them there, then you are jointly guilty of murder. Morally, does it? I mean, we're all capable of saying that about somebody. I wish they were dead. I'd like to kill them. Particularly considering what she's been through. It's a perfectly natural reaction. So what I was trying to do was to raise the question in the reader's and then the viewer's mind, to what extent is Yvonne culpable? And actually, I know what I think, but I'm quite happy for people to make up their own mind based on what they feel... You do it
0: slightly differently in the book, don't you? You don't Mm. have that that they dramatised the sort of prison conversation.
1: Yes, that was an entirely an invention of the drama. And, I mean, that was, to me, the most fascinating thing about watching the adaptation, because it was very interesting to see the elements that had to be added for the needs of a television drama. And what the programme makers pointed out was that if there wasn't a scene where Yvonne goes to visit Costley in prison, then you never see him after the arrest. They have no contact. And you don't really want your male lead just to simply disappear at that point of the drama. There needs to be a concluding scene between them.
0: They're constantly making them pass in corridors and sit in the dock together. Is that that actually how the criminal law works?
1: Yes, it is. They would be in the dock together. There might maybe have been dock officers sitting between them. That's what I've observed sometimes when there's multiple defendants. But yes, they would have been in the dock next to each other and they would have been bumping into each other in the corridors. But I think What I loved about that scene in The Prison is, I think... I mean, it really gave Ben Chaplin a chance to show his acting chops, I think, because I think one thing he's really good at is showing Costley's gradual sort of diminution from being this kind of sort of slightly egotistical seducer to a fantasist who's been unmasked. And, you know, what does happen to a man like him when he can no longer believe his own fantasies about himself, when it's all been stripped away... And I thought he did that brilliantly. And he has no dialogue at all in the whole of the courtroom drama scene. He just sits in the dock and it's just all on his facial expression. And I, I thought he was really wonderful at that.
0: One of the things that... that I mean, he's a, he's a good example, but that book seemed to me to be a sort of... a series of studies of kind of male inadequacy. I mean, did you... You see it that way because there's sort of... Nobody quite responds in the right way to her, do they? I mean costly is, you know, you've been raped, oh, I'm going to get mm. angry. You know, her husband's got this sort of, you know, his own thing going on again, doesn't... I mean, was that how you see the...
1: It, it wasn't deliberate. I'm <laughs> not... I'm not um, I, I don't think... I, I I certainly didn't set out to demonstrate male inadequacies. I mean, you could argue that there's plenty of, females there's inadequacies of female in there, inadequacies and that well. actually that it really, it's about human frailty. And one thing I've been very firm about is that I'm not asking the reader to endorse everything that Yvonne does. So I'm not asking the reader to be entirely on her side and think, gosh, all these men are awful. What I'm saying is here is a woman who I hope you find engaging, who actually does a rather stupid thing, which is meet a man and instantly begin this very passionate affair. She's been very rational up until then. She steps out of line. She does one irrational thing. And I'm not asking the reader to approve of her behaviour. I'm asking the reader to question whether the punishment she receives is proportionate, and whether it is proportionate to how man behaving in the same situation would be treated, and there is supposed to be a comparison between Yvonne 's affair and her husband's affair. Yvonne is having sex in public places, which we can all agree is possibly not a nice thing to do if you're married. But she works very hard to keep it away from the family, keep it away from the home, to keep it something that's completely distinct from the rest of her life. Whereas her husband, who is having an emotionally involved affair with a vulnerable young woman in whom he has a supervisory capacity she's a a young researcher and he's the professor at the lab actually brings it to their door and he says at one point and I love the bit in the drama where he says I'm not sleeping with her that's all you need to know as if that makes it all right and actually of course it doesn't he's potentially doing a lot more damage to their marriage and certainly to the young woman than Yvonne who is ostensibly doing something much more reprehensible she's doing something quite French you know keep it quite separate (laughs) and So I suppose what I wanted to say is, yes, there are male inadequacies. Yvonne, the main character herself, also does a lot of things that a lot of people would disapprove of. But it's a question of how judgmental we are and whether or not the standards that we hold women to are different or excessive in comparison with the standards that we hold men to.
0: Now, The Sun claims you're writing a sequel.
1: (laughs) Yes, that was very funny. We actually found that online. I watched episode four as it went out with the producer, the director, the screenwriter, the executive producer. We had a bit of a sort of episode four party at Amanda Coe's house. And of course, all, all the TV people are online. And uh, as the credits rolled, Jessica Hobbs, the director, started reading out this article in The Sun online about how I'm writing a sequel. And we were whooping. Uh, the Sun said it was an exclusive. All I can say is it's so exclusive that even I didn't know. <laughs> uh, and in fact, the next morning, my partner said to me, oh, what are you doing today? I said, I don't know. I'm going to go out and buy The Sun and find out. That was very spooky, particularly when they say a source close to the author, because yeah. you do start wondering. <laughs> it's almost on, as if just, they make yes. this stuff up. Yeah. It's a novel about fantasists. say, of it, Louise, please. yes. All I can work out where that came from is, I think... Some poor so-and-so at the sun must have been sitting trolling through my tweets going back because I seem to remember a couple of years ago somebody asking me on Twitter while there being a sequel and me saying something suitably mysterious like, oh, who knows, maybe, and I think somebody had to go all that way back to find something worth making a story out of. It's been very, very strange, that level of attention. I mean, as you know, most novelists spend most of their life in a room on their own, making up stories, arguably not a normal way to earn a living. Exactly. But, um, you know, we're like badgers or moles. We're sort of in our little holes underground. And then something public happens and it's like someone's got the badger or the mole by their hind legs, drags them out of the burrow and kind of throws you onto a dinner table around which a dozen people in suits and cocktail gowns and says, now tap dance. You know, that, that's a bit what You it's see yourself as like... a tap dancing badger. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, there you go. That's the spectator's shock exclusive. <laughs> there we go. Yes, exactly. Yeah.
0: So put that in your pipe and smoke it sun. Now, you actually have written a novel since. I mean, when you and I first met, you were writing an excellent column for The Daily Telegraph called "Write a Novel in a Year." And I noticed you haven't been keeping up to that rate of output. What happened?
1: Oh, uh, life. Life happened. Yes, it was probably a bit cheeky of me to suggest to any telegraph <laughs> readers that it was possible, actually, to be fair, lots of writers do write novels in a year. I don't think, yeah, I think in my early days, pre-children, I did do a couple my short books that were done in a year. I went a bit crazy after Apple Tree Yard and decided to write a novel set in a long haul destination arguably not sensible when you have school aged children and it was also historical, it goes back to 1942 it's set mostly in Indonesia there's also a section set during the civil rights movement in 1950s America and in Amsterdam at the height yes, of the Cold War say, you know,
0: What's nice got like you're doing a novel set in Indonesia and Holland and America. I
1: know, I don't know what I was thinking, none of it's set in the UK none of the characters are British, none of them have ever even been here it's almost as though something inside me having written a very intense quite personal first person present tense female narrative looking back on it I think maybe something inside me went huh you think, that's all I can do. Well, take this. And I sort of went off. And I, I didn't do that consciously, but I think in retrospect, something inside me just went off and thought, third let's go completely third person male. He's mixed race, part Indonesian, Dutch. And then the section, you know, in the civil rights with a black family in a middle-class area of Los Angeles in 1949, 1950. I mean, I, I really did make my job as difficult as it could have possibly been with Blackwater. I don't know what came over me. And did you you know, treat yourself to trips to Indonesia by way of research. I did, but I think treats the wrong word, I'm afraid. I did do a mad dash to Jakarta when I was doing the rewrites, I just realised the Jakarta scenes were very thin because I hadn't been there. I'd been to Bali. So I just got on a plane and Jakarta's quite a tough city to when you've got to try and get round it in a hurry in monsoon kind rain. Of smoggy. And very smoggy. Twenty million people, huge and i managed to i hired a bbc fixer in fact because i only had a few days there and there were certain areas i needed to see i needed to see the port but i needed to see the old port as it was in 1965 which is when harper the main character he comes in by boat and ends up taking part in the massacres there at that time And I needed that old port, so I hired a fantastic Indonesian man who occasionally works for the BBC, and I just said, these are the places I need to go. I went into the slums with him, the Kangpong and Chinatown. And sometimes that's just what you have to do.
0: If you'd never been there in the first place... What made you think, oh, I know, this, you know, these massacres in mid-century Jakarta, that's what I'll write about. It, it, I mean, had you read a book about them? No, it you? does sound
1: a bit mad, doesn't it? it? Actually, it's all down to a visit I made in 2012 to the Ubud Readers and Writers Festival on Bali. And I'd never been to Indonesia at that point. But it's a fantastic festival. It's run by a wonderful Indonesian woman called Janet Deneef, Australian by birth, Indonesian now, married to a Balinese man. And she set up this literary festival as a response to the Bali bombings because the economy of the island just tanked and it was very, very serious that the tourists disappeared. So she set up this literary festival. She brings writers from all over the world. It's a really, really wonderful festival and also includes Indonesian writers, has an emerging writers festival for emerging Indonesian writers. I went there and I was staying in a very luxurious hotel that sponsored the festival outside of town bit in the middle of nowhere and I was lying awake every single night and it was partly the jet lag partly one too many cocktails at the festival parties but also partly that the night in rural Indonesia if you live in London it's so different you know it's so noisy in a different way with the cicadas and the monkeys on the roof and the geckos and the squirrels and I I couldn't sleep a wink and an image came to me of a man in a hut in rural Indonesia and I didn't know who he was or why he was there. I just knew that he was mortally afraid. And he thinks with men with machetes are going to come and kill him. But I knew that what he was afraid of was not what was going to happen. What he was afraid of was something that he himself had done. And I knew that he'd been in Indonesia 30 years before and he had taken part in the upheavals of 1965. And he had come back for the fall of Suharto in 1998, and that's when the ghosts of his past come to get him. And then I just had to take it from there. I had this image of the man in the hut, and I had to write the whole novel to find out who he was and, and why he was there, really. I think the moral of the story is, don't don't visit festivals in really interesting places. <laughs> <laughs> <Because> <laughs> then you've had it for the next three years. Yeah.
0: Yes, no, well, they, they, they should invoice you. <laughs> <laughs> they probably should, actually. Or vice versa. The last couple of novels... I mean, you started writing kind of comic fiction, I think, and your last couple of novels have been thrillers. Do you feel you've sort of... Or psychological thrillers in some sense. Do you feel you've kind of found your groove in the sort of psychological thriller mode? Or-
1: well, I guess so, but I... I always find it slightly baffling to be sort of put in any groove, really. I mean, I I probably should be a bit more strategic about it, but I never have. I've always just written whatever stories come into my head in whatever way I want to. And then I've sort of handed it over to the poor publisher and gone, here, market this. <laughs> and they've been very good about it, I have to say. I mean, as you say, Crazy Paving, the first one, had a sort of comic kind of overtones or very blackly comic. And then I wrote my fourth and fifth novels were historical. And it was really with the sixth novel, Whatever You Love, that people started calling me a psychological thriller author. I'm happy with that label because I think it fits... I mean, I think I'm... I mean, I've been... I mean, Whatever You Love was shortlisted for The Costa and longlisted for The Orange. So... I think I write what's loosely known, as, laughingly known as literary fiction, but definitely the readable end. I think I'm quite a plot-driven novelist. And I think the great thing about the thriller label is it's pretty loose and baggy, and you can apply it to all sorts of stories. I mean, I thought Blackwater was rather a heavyweight book. It's a book about political violence, but... Faber are marketing that very successfully, I might say, as a kind of Graham Greene, John Le Carre, you know, man in a situation the of danger. They of you tick both of those boxes. Actually, it it, it did tick both those boxes. I'm happy with that. You know, my feeling is that as a novelist, if you start agonising too much about how you're perceived, kind of that way madness lies. And if you start over anticipating how you're going to be received, equally, you'll drive yourself crazy. I think you have to try and block out the white noise of all that while you're actually working on a novel. Once it's finished and you're rewriting it and you're in conversations with the publisher, then is the time to look at it and say, OK, what shape is this thing that I have made? Is it a flat thing or a round thing or a spiky thing? And, but it's the publisher's job as a commercial operation to market your book. It's your job just to write it as well as you can. And that's what I do. I'm not strategic. I don't think about what category or genre I'm in. I just tell the story I want to tell as well as I can. And, and then it's, it's Faber's problem to really to market it.
0: In terms of sort of licence to write, I'd be intrigued by what your take is on... Do you remember not, not very long ago, Lionel Shriver gave a speech at the Sydney Writers' Festival about cultural appropriation and you know, are you allowed to write Mm. a character? I mean, you've written a character here who's half Dutch, half Indonesian. Do you feel you you back Lionel in terms of...
1: I'm afraid I thought Lionel was talking out of her shiny white behind. Um, (laughs) I just think that she had completely the wrong end of the stick. And I think if you read the full text of her speech, which I have, you'll see she was actually just really cheesed off. She got a bad review in one of the American newspapers. I think it was the Washington Post. And had been criticised for the way in which a black character was presented. And she was going on the defensive. But nobody is persecuting Lionel Shriver. Nobody's banning her books and nobody's putting her in prison. I think all people are saying is, do your job well. And if you're doing your job well and responsibly... You don't get criticised for moving outside your own biographical details. I mean, certainly all I can tell you is that in Indonesia, amongst the Indonesian writers and publishers I've spoken to, Blackwater has been very well received. I did my homework. I went there four times. I worked very hard. I would not have written that book from the point of view of an Indonesian character who had grown up in Indonesia because I just don't have the appropriate experience. Harper is mixed race, half Dutch, half Indonesian, but he's only spent the first three years of his life in Indonesia in a Japanese internment camp on the island of Sulawesi. After that, he's taken back to the Netherlands for a few years, then he goes to Los Angeles with his mother. So he is, if you like, he's a chameleon, he's an outsider wherever he goes. Now it's very easy for any writer to write an outsider because I think writers are outsiders in one way or another. So in many ways, I think of Harper as almost my most autobiographical character yet, Mm. even though he's male, different nationality and different race from me.
0: Madame Bovary, same one.
1: Absolutely, yeah. And I think it's a false argument, this idea, can you write someone who's different from you? Of course you can, otherwise every single novel I write would be about a 50-something woman. I think it's a question just of how well you do it. If you do it well enough, if you work hard enough, if you do your research, and really try and think beyond your own immediate perceptions, then I don't think you do get criticised for writing characters different from yourself. I mean, all I can say is I haven't had any difficulty with that issue.
0: Very good. Louise Doughty, thank you very much indeed.
1: (laughs) Thank you. If
0: you enjoyed that, please do subscribe to our iTunes channel.